Well, how are you guys doing? Good. I've, I'm great. Thanks, Mark. I, I've been out of town for like 10 days. Last Thursday, Riley and I flew to LAX and to Seattle for training. Then from Seattle, I flew to Phoenix for spring training. Some of you get me there. And, yay. and then I drove from Phoenix back here. Then the next day, flew to Dallas for some more training. So I'm kind of, I got back from Dallas like at 9 o'clock last night. So, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm just tired. Um, but and I, I know that I'm supposed to say this, but, but this is really true. The whole 10-day trip, I'm in five different states. All I can think about is this sermon. I, I'm so excited to share this sermon because this is, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, this is the sermon I've always wanted to preach. And the reason is, this is not just my favorite section of the gospel. This is my favorite chapter, my favorite story in all of the Bible. It's so cool. And um, I'm going to share it with you today. And, um, but first, what I want to say I'm excited about is that my mom's here. <laughs> she didn't know I was doing that. <laughs> and she also had no idea that the opening story has something to do with her, which is kind of awkward. Um, every Christmas, my mom would buy me a gift, but then say it was from my dog. And it was from Bandit. And mom, what was it? It was a calendar. And, and I really, I, I, at least in theory, I loved those daily calendars where you flip off a new one each day. Because in January, you're like, yes. And then in February, you're like, did I have a calendar? And, and, and there was one year, thank you, Albert. There was one year, thank you. There was one year where I actually followed through and did the calendar for the whole year. And this is a very, very, very popular daily calendar. Does anybody, can anybody guess what calendar that was? Wow. That is, yeah, absolutely. It was the far side. So um, I love the far side. And we're going to be talking about context today. I used to be an English teacher, so of course I have to talk about context. And with the far side... The context is everything. You see, the far side, if you're, if you're young or old or have been living in a cave, the far side is one picture and a caption. And the picture might be funny. It might make no sense. It, it's just whatever. But then when you get the context, when you get the caption, then it becomes funny. So Trevor's going to help me out with this. Trevor, shoot that first picture up there. So it's kind of hard to see. So we've got a house, and we got this balloon, and they painted a face on the balloon. I mean, again, not terribly funny, but then when we add the context, now go to sleep, Kevin, or once again I'll have to knock three times and summon the floating head of death. I love that. Let's go to the next one. Come on, Dad, shoot the apple, shoot the apple. See, kind of funny, kind of funny, but then we get the context. Unknown to most historians, William Tell had an older and less fortunate son named Warren. So, a lot funnier once we get the context. Let's go to the next one. This is my favorite, my number one favorite of all time. A lot of us know what this is. What, what's the caption? How birds see the world. So at first, you, you could think, oh, they're just wearing funny yarmulkes. But um, that's not the case. This, this is how birds see the world. Let's go to the next one. All right, so he's got a, he's got a target on his chest. Does anybody know the caption? <laughs> yes. You got best crowd ever. Wow. This is, this is too easy. So the far side, let's go to the next slide. Context, Hal. These pictures, they might be kind of funny. 
or they might not be funny at all. I mean, with this, if you take the words out, you're just kind of confused. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes in the Bible, if we don't know the context, we don't get 100% of the story. In the Bible, we have the dialogue. We have the action. We, we, we have God's plan a lot of the time. But in some stories, we need the historical background. We need the historic context, the culture and the history. And that's what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give the culture and the history behind my favorite story in the Bible. When I was in graduate school, I took a class, full semester class, and it was only about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and a little bit of Acts. And um, my professor said, most of you guys have read these stories before, but I'm going to teach you in depth about what was going on in the world, what some of the customs were, because the Jews at that time, they had their biblical customs, but they also had their man-made customs. And those aren't in the Bible. We're not really familiar with all of those. But then when I learned what those were, it completely changed a whole bunch of stories, including the story that I'm going to teach today. At the end of the semester, by the way, I got an A. At the end of the semester, th this is weird, and I don't want you guys to misunderstand me here because now I'm changing my voice so you know I'm getting serious. At the end of the semester, I was left with one thought. I, I, I had never thought this thought about Jesus before. I'd never had this thought about the Bible before. I learned all the history, all the context, all the customs that I had never learned before. And I left my class with one thought. My thought was this. No wonder they wanted to kill Jesus. In Sunday school, as the kids are learning right now, I learned, a lot of us learned, Jesus was perfect. Jesus healed people. Jesus loved people, and then they killed him. And I, I, I don't think if I healed any of you guys right now, you would try to kill me. I, I just don't think it works. So for most of my life, there was this disconnect. Jesus is perfect, and, and then they killed him. It didn't really make sense until I took this class. And so this picture is up behind me, not just because I have to open with something funny so you don't fall asleep. This picture is behind me because this is exactly what Jesus did. In these stories, in, this, in the story that we're going through, Jesus put a target on his chest. We're going to go through some stories today, and when we get the full picture, you're going to say with me, no wonder they wanted to kill Jesus. You know, one of the things, Jesus threatened the Sabbath. According to the tradition, and this is the man-made tradition, a Jewish man could not write two letters of the alphabet on a Sabbath day because that was work. They also had this crazy law that said, if you take more than a certain amount of steps away from your house, that is work and you are sinning. And then so Jesus walks up and heals a man on the Sabbath in front of everybody, in front of priests, in front of normal people, and he breaks this tradition in front of everybody's face. And when he does that, he puts a target on his chest. Jesus really threatened the, the religious hierarchy. We all know this story, the Good Samaritan. And when I Googled Samaritan yesterday, the, the definition has actually turned into a synonym for a good person. That's not what a Samaritan was back then. And so we've got the story. A man is lying on the ground, and he's beaten. We've got a really cool painting of it behind me. Put the words up there. So there's a man lying beaten on the ground. A priest passes by on the other side of the road. A Levite passes by on the other side of the road. And then a Samaritan came where the man was 
and he took pity on them. And Jesus shares this and says, the Samaritan was the good neighbor. And this is in the context of being a good neighbor leads to eternal life. So Jesus is preaching to a crowd and said, this person that we won't even touch knows more about God than that priest over there. Now, we don't find that offensive. But back then, that's really offensive. It would be, it would be like this. Let's say a man, because we don't have many robbers, let's say a man is jaywalking across Montgomery Boulevard because, hey, we've all done it, and, and he gets hit by a car. And there's a man lying on Montgomery Boulevard, and I'm sharing the story with you, but here's the names I use instead. Let's change them, Trevor. Jason Burnett passed by on the other side of the road. Yeah, yeah. Who doesn't have a job on Monday? What about the Levite? What do we got there? Bruce Burnham, our shepherd, passed by on the other side of the road. The, 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 the moral of the story is don't go on vacation with Patrick the week before he preaches. Now, now here's the hard one. Change it, Trevor. What if I was to preach that a Mormon knows more about loving God than Bruce or Jason does? I probably won't ever preach again. You guys are not going to be very happy. But that is, that, that's very, very close to what Jesus did. He teaches that a Samaritan, someone with a wrong interpretation of God's law, knows more about loving God than a priest and a Levite. And when Jesus does that, he puts a target on his chest. Jesus threatened religious traditions. This, one, this one's offensive, and if I offend you, I'm not trying to, but this is, this is pretty close to what Jesus did. Jason talked a couple weeks about Jesus turning water into wine. At the front, of, front door of every Jewish household, there was a 20-gallon stone jar filled with water, and the tradition was you wash your hands in it before you go in to say that you're clean. It, it was a tradition, but you had to do it. And Jesus takes that and turns it into a jug full of wine. So it's not just water sitting there that Jesus turns into wine. It's water associated with a very, very important religious practice. It'd be kind of like this. There's a wedding going on in the gym over there, and none of us are invited, but, but, but one of us walks through, and, and we see that for this wedding, they're drinking alcohol. But they, yeah, <gasps> oh my gosh. Sorry, sorry, that's not the offensive part. I'm still getting there. <laughs> Woo! Sorry, sorry, don't hate me. So, and they're drinking alcohol in the gym, but they've run out of cups. So, so they, they went over there and, and they said, oh, we found some more cups. And they're drinking the alcohol out of our communion cups. Yeah, I, I can't imagine a lot of us would find that very tasteful. But that's pretty close to what Jesus did, except he invented the alcohol. And when he did that, it's not just this cool story that we teach in Sunday school. He's going to offend some people. Now, all of these things, the, the Good Samaritan, healing, turning water into wine, Jesus did not set out with the goal of offending people. He was not trying to be offensive. Instead, he wasn't breaking God's law. He was breaking social customs. He was breaking social rules, things that people had added to make loving God even harder. And people were offended because Jesus proved that they loved their traditions more than they loved God. Sound familiar? I know I've been there. Jesus was trying to say, these rules won't save you. But here's the crazy part. The Pharisees, they, they gained their prominence because of their strictness, and they were being strict for one reason. 
They said, if we will just get super hardcore about all of these rules, if we'll follow the law way farther than God ever intended us to do, maybe then God will send the Messiah. So God sends the Messiah, and they're too focused on their rules to see the Messiah. And so Jesus is doing all these things to say, you know, in the immortal words of Taylor Swift, what you're looking for has been here the whole time. Jesus is saying, what you're looking for, it's right here. Now my favorite story of Jesus threatening the religious, the social status quo is in John chapter 7. That's what I'm focusing on today. I'm going to read it multiple times. It starts in John chapter 7, verse 37, if you want to flip there. I'll read it right now. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus said, stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will, will flow with, from within them. This is a great quote. We have a children's song about this. We've got hand motions to that song. But actually, this is Jesus's, this is one of his most controversial sayings. This is, he's interrupting something here. I, I misinterpreted this verse because if you notice, Jesus didn't say it. He said it in a loud voice. So I should have shouted it right now, but I don't want to break my microphone. It's a cool story, cool quote, good theology. But if we don't know the context behind the festival, we're not going to understand how divisive this is. And it's amazing. And when I learned this in my graduate class, it blew my mind. And all I've been praying for, for this sermon, for you guys today, is that God will open up our minds so we can see how huge these two sentences were. So I'm going to break down the festival here. This occurs on the last day of the Festival of Tabernacles. It's also called the Festival of Booths. And um, the, the Hebrew word for booth is spelled S-U-K-K-O-T, but it's pronounced like, I'm going to get you sucka. So can everyone say sucka? Sukka. So this is the festival of Sukka. They have a bunch of names for it. They call it the Feast of Ingathering. They call it the Feast of the Lord. My favorite, they just call it the Season of Our Joy. But in John and in many Jewish traditions still today, they don't have a name for it. It's so big, it's so cool, all they call it is the feast. We're going to celebrate the festival. It's so big, it's so important, it's such a big deal, that's all they call it. Think of your favorite holiday. No, really, think about it. Imagine what you do. Now imagine that it goes on for seven days, and that is the feast. The feast revolves around the harvest. It occurs in September, just after the final harvest of the year. All of the fruit for the year and all of the wheat for the year has been gathered, so they know now how much food they have for the winter. They know how much food they have for the rest of the year. God lays out the feast in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 13. He says this, Celebrate the festival of, tab festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at, the, at your festival, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. It goes on to say, give them free food. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. 
It's kind of like the Jewish Thanksgiving. That's really what they call it. But the whole thing, it's not focused on that the Native Americans came and kept us alive. It's focused on the idea that God grows our crops. The rain doesn't grow our crops. God sends the rain. God created science. That's how it works. God keeps us alive. And you know, the Israelites, they need to remember that because we, we've gone through all of, the, all of the chapters of the story and it's like every single week they forget, oh yeah, God helped us out. They forget that. And so this festival every year for seven days, they say God keeps us alive. There's also a bunch of sacrifice because, I mean, let's face it, what would a Jewish festival be without a bunch of dead animals? Um, Numbers 29 says, Every single day, it says how many animals you have to kill. So I just randomly picked the fifth day. On the fifth day, you, you sacrifice nine bulls, two rams, 14 spotless one-year-old lambs, in addition to the drink and grain offerings. And then it's, it's different for day six, and it's different for day seven. So through sacrifice, it's not just about killing animals. Through sacrifice, they're reminding themselves. The food doesn't keep us going. God keeps us going. Even if all of our animals died, God would find a way to keep us alive. And it's true. He did it. And so this is helping them remember that. One of the biggest festive parts of the feast is the building of the booth, of the sukkah. It's, all, it's always 70 degrees in September at this time. The rainy season hasn't begun yet, so it's getting cooler. It's like perfect weather. I'm hoping that it gets like that soon here. And they celebrate this in this time of the year because God asked them to build a booth. And I'll read what that is. Leviticus 23, verse 42. Live in temporary shelters, which we translate to booths, for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So during the feast... All men come to Jerusalem and live in these three-walled temporary housing. And, and God gives s- some instructions for it. And one of the cool things is he says, don't fully enclose your, your booth with, it, with a roof because I want you to be able to see the stars. It's 70 degrees. It's got a nice chill going on. And you're, you're, you're falling asleep looking at the stars. It's so cool. Um, during my research for this, I found a really cool graphic organizer because I used to be a teacher, so graphic organizers are cool. And um, it's called Suckapalooza. <laughs> I'm going to show part of it here because I could do a whole lesson on this, but there's a part I want us to get. And um, if you go to the next slide, Trevor, I zoom in on the sucka. So I'm, I, I don't think you can read this. Um, during this holiday, the families eat all meals, study Torah, and unless it becomes very uncomfortable, sleep in the sucka. Much like a Christmas tree, decorating the sukkah is a special activity for families to participate in together. So you've got three walls there, and you've got a partially made roof. Um, And at the bottom it says, decorating the inside of one's sukkah is common practice and definitely encouraged. Seasonal vegetables, as well as artwork done by the children of the family, are hung from the roof and the walls. So God does not say, build this thing, it'll be such a burden. God is saying, have fun with this. Build this to remind yourselves that I kept you guys alive in the desert. So when I read the story again, because I'm going to read what I just read, these are the things that I want you to imagine. Lots of feasting. We've got all of our food from the year. We're giving food to the poor people. We're we're sacrificing animals every day. We're reading scripture every day. We're sleeping 
and open-air tents decorated like Christmas trees. One account I read said, and this is hyperbole, but I love what they're saying here. They said there were so many candles lit up at night that Jerusalem was as bright at midnight as it was at noon. And then there's one part that I don't understand. Um, The priests at the temple had four jumbo-sized menorahs, would light them with jumbo-sized candles, and then just start lighting stuff on fire. I, I, I don't know but they called it a light show for 2,000 years ago. So, so we've got all this free food, and they're blowing stuff up, and animals are dying so we can smell that. That's the context of this story. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, I'm going to try it, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. There's one thing I didn't mention. There's one detail I left out about the feast. And this one detail is going to take those words from normal to no wonder they wanted to kill Jesus. John tells us that this story, and this is so important, takes place on the last and greatest day of the feast. Because on the last and greatest day of the feast, one line of prayer is added. They pray for rain. The whole feast is not just focused on food. It's also focused on water. At the beginning of the feast, they read every scripture that talks about water. Every morning, they have a golden jar. They fill it with water and dump it out on the altar to say, God gives us water. The final day is a pray for rain because they know the only way they're going to continue to grow food is if God sends the rain, if God sends the water. And so right in the middle of this, Jesus says, hey guys, if you're thirsty, come to me. They're dumping out water and Jesus says, it's not about that, it's about me. Jesus doesn't just say, you guys are missing the point. Jesus is saying, hey guys, I am the point. What you're looking for, it's right here. And when he does this, he paints a target on his chest. I wanted to come up with an equivalent of this, and and I'm going to just apologize right now if this is the tackiest thing you've ever seen on a sermon. But I promise you won't forget what I'm about to do. Like saying that Jason was the priest, or like talking about drinking, drinking alcohol out of a communion cup, Some of these are lost in 2,000 years of history. And so what I want you guys to do right now is imagine that it's not March 22nd, that tonight is December 24th. We're we're not here for a church gathering. We're here for the Christmas Eve candlelight service. Actually, can we, can we, I, I didn't plan this before. Can we turn the lights down a little bit? We'll pretend it's Christmas. Is that, oh, thank you, Baird. But all you did was turn the lights off on me. I get it. All right. See you later. (laughs) So, all right. Okay. It's cold outside. We're wondering, is it going to snow tonight? Are we going to have a white Christmas? Some of the kids are thinking, what presents am I going to get? Some of us are families in town. Some of us were not even here because we're going out of town. Some of us are driving tonight. 
all of us are thinking, yes. All of us are thinking, when will Patrick stop talking so I can go to Old Town and go see all the luminarias? It's Christmas Eve. And in October, because that's what my wife decided, we started decorating a tree. Because that's how early grace does things. But some of you guys are going to go finish up your tree tonight. Some of you guys, you're going to go take your Christmas present and you're going to put it under the tree. You know, we even have a Christmas carol about a tree. Uh, Worship team, could you guys sing that for us? Let's do it. Join in if you want to. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, thy leaves are so unchanging. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, thy leaves are so unchanging. Not only green when summer's here, but also when it's cold and drear. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, thy leaves are so unchanging. Tonight we're going to gather around the tree. And whether you're Christian or you're not Christian, most people have this tree. This tree actually is from our church office. We're going to gather around the tree. It's a holy night. It's a sacred night. It's a traditional night. And right in the middle of our Christmas Eve service, someone stands up and says, and the singer stops singing, and we're all staring at Riley. Thank you, guys. Thank you, youth group. Yeah, they know what's up. Let's get the lights on now. As, as tacky as that was, and thank, thank you guys for doing that, this is really close to what Jesus does in John 7. On Christmas, a lot of us gather around the tree, as weird of a tradition as it is, and we, a lot of us, a lot of people in our culture, they don't even celebrate Jesus. They're celebrating foliage. And then Riley stands up and says, I'm the tree of life. He's drawing a direct metaphor to what we're celebrating and to what he really is. Riley's not Jesus. Don't go there. At the same time, all of the Jews are praying for water asking God for water, and recognizing that God gives us water. Jesus stands up and says, if you're thirsty, come to me. What you're looking for, it's right here. If Riley did this, we'd chase him out of the building. We'd be furious. That guy wouldn't have a job on Monday. But this is what Jesus did. And when he did this, he painted a target on his chest. No wonder They wanted to kill him. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He's the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, a town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him but no one laid a hand on him. Imagine if someone did what Riley just did and ruined your Christmas, the day you've been looking forward to all year. Let's say you love Thanksgiving. Somebody stole all your food or just, or, or unplugged your cable so you couldn't watch NFL. Yeah, I know. 
someone broke your tradition in any way, would you be ready to give your life to that person and follow them? Jesus was saying, these traditions are fine, but I am more important. None of your traditions matter unless you know me. One of the, 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 the strongest dividing lines around the globe in Christianity today is the line between Calvinism and Arminianism, or predestination and free will, where we, where, where, did God create a special race of people and he knew and he created them to choose him and then the rest of the people just go to hell? Or did God create all people and give everybody a chance, free will, to follow him? This is really big. And I've only been here six months, so I'm going to let Jason preach on that. Whenever anybody asks me about that, this is the story I go to. Because at the beginning of John 7, we learn it is not safe for Jesus to go to Judea. They say, Jesus, don't go there. And Jesus knows they are looking for a way. This is in the scripture. They are looking for a way to kill him. They're looking for one reason to kill him. And so Jesus for a while says, I'm not going to go. But he goes. He goes to a group and preaches to the group, even though he knows that most of them will not listen. He goes to the group because he knows five of those people, ten of those people will. Jesus knows they're going to try to kill him. They've already made up their minds. But he goes anyway. Some of the people, they say, Jesus, you are demon-possessed. Other people say, that guy is good. Other people look at Jesus, and then they turn to the people, and they say, this guy is trying to deceive you. And then John says, other, people's li- other people listened to Jesus and were amazed. Jesus risked his life to preach to people that had already rejected him. He painted a target on his chest just so a few more people could say, he is the Messiah. He is my Savior. So do we have free will? Were we created that we can only choose God and we have no say in the matter? According to John chapter 7, it doesn't matter. Jesus is coming after us and there's nothing we can do about it. Jesus is going to speak to us. Jesus is going to move into our lives whether or not we've rejected him in the past. And that, that's not good news. That's great news. And this this is what the, the story, this is what it's all about. Earth rejects God. So God comes down. We walk away from God. God puts on skin and walks towards us. Jesus' own people reject him. And he risks his life for one more sermon. Some of us here, we've rejected Jesus before. Some of us here, we, we are rejecting Jesus with our lips. Some of us here, we're rejecting Jesus with our lifestyle. But what this story tells us is it doesn't matter. That has no effect on Jesus. Jesus was rejected by his own and kept on coming back. The great news is that Jesus is relentless, and there's nothing we can do to prevent him from calling out to us. So whether you rejected God this week, whether you rejected God this morning, 
or whether you've been rejecting God for, for a decade. Jesus isn't just here in this big, big macro sense. Jesus is here right now. And if you're in this room, he's speaking to you. And his message is this. What you're looking for, it's right here. Let's all stand up. Just like I said, at times we have all rejected Jesus. And that has no effect on Jesus. And we're going to have some time to pray right now. And if you want to pray by yourself, just, just open your heart to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have rejected you, but I'm not anymore. If you want to pray with the person next to you, do that. If you want to go all the way across, people do that, and that's great. If God wants you to pray for somebody, don't deny that. Don't reject that thought. God's giving you that thought. If you want to come up here and pray with the shepherds, please come up here and pray with the shepherds. We're going to sing a song, and we're going to have some prayer time. And so just I ask that we all pray to God right now.